This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Congressional Dish, The Daily Show, Take Part, and The Young Turks. And a quick thought that although profit is a great motivator for many things, it's not the most appropriate motivation for all circumstances. So you have to know when to put down the hammer and stop looking for nails. Obviously, I am more sensitive to issues of education because I have um, one child who is now uh, winding her way through elementary school, another one who sadly is years off, uh, which means that I got to go through all the toddlerhood and all that wonderful stuff. But um, I'm obviously more sensitized uh, to uh, to it because I have kids, but... Um, it also, uh, even if you don't have kids, if you plan to have kids, or even if you don't plan to have kids, understand the uh, the the children who go through our public education system are going to be the future leaders of tomorrow. Of course, they'll all be in. Um, they'll all be. The, I, I should really say the right hand uh, men and women of uh, those people who go through the private schools, right? Uh, the elite. But nevertheless, you want your uh, upper management people to uh, to be doing all right. I joke. Um, this story from the Daily News. Understand what's happening with our high um, high stakes testing. Kids are forced to take tests as a way of 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 determining the efficacy of what teachers are doing, and therefore uh, the funding that a school will get. This is very problematic uh, for a number of reasons. One, it promotes cheating by teachers and administrations because their funding depends on it. It promotes teachers and administrators teaching throughout the year not to better educate their kids, but simply to take a test, like a monkey. We don't contemplate the idea of monkeys being well-educated because they have been taught to pull a lever. That is one of the biggest problems with this high-stakes testing. The idea of giving tests to kids is not a problem. And it can be used to assess certain um, strengths and weaknesses of kids and of schools. But when it is made so high stakes, it begins to warp the teaching process. When in the instance of a school that apparently does not have higher grades, uh, i.e., um, I believe it's third or fourth and sixth grades, you start to force kindergartners to take standardized tests, you have lost your mind. According to the Daily News, because of a new tough, a tough new curriculum and teacher evaluations, four- and five-year-olds are learning how to fill in bubbles on standardized math tests to show how much they know about numbers, shapes, and order. This is absurd. Four, you know what you teach four, four-year-olds and five-year-olds when it comes to filling in bubbles? How to hold a pencil. 
Kids is like age like two and three, the thing you teach them about reading is how to hold the book and go left to right. I mean, there are some very rudimentary things that kids four and five year olds should be learning. Teachers said the kindergartners are bewildered. Sharing is not caring anymore. Developmentally, it's not the right thing to do, says a Queens teacher, whose pupils kept trying to help one another on a math test she gave for the first time this fall because kids at that age are being taught to socialize. They are being taught to cooperate. They are being taught to solve a problem together. They're scared. They just don't understand you're supposed to bubble in next to the answer. The state's teacher ratings, which are in their first year, require each city's school to administer some tests. State exams are usually administered starting in third grade, but 36 early elementary schools that have only younger students in kindergarten through second grade are required to give the multiple-choice test to kids who are just starting school. This is just insane. One of three tests obtained by the Daily News is created by Pearson. Pearson is the private company that created tests that ask bizarre questions, some of which parents and teachers couldn't answer, some of which were completely wrong, some of which used supposed sort of like um, question points that no kids would be aware of. It's like saying, like, if you're hydrofracking a certain amount of gallons per day and you're doing it for a week, how many gallons will you have? To, the kids don't know what hydrofracking is. I think theirs involved something with the pineapple. I don't know what it was. It was a talking pineapple. They don't know how to pull, hold pencils, says a Bronx kindergarten teacher whose class recently took the Pearson exam. They don't know letters. And they have answers that say A, B, C, or D, and you're asking them to bubble in. They break down. They cry. Education department officials say, well, the tests don't really have to be taken right now. They can be taken in the spring. But still, this is just obscene and bizarre. And this is a perfect example of corporate bottom line Management philosophy being imposed on children. And the thing is, is that in corporate, corporate world, the corporate world is self-selecting. And to the extent that it's not self-selecting, they weed out people who don't fit into this paradigm. Schools are not supposed to do that. They're supposed to teach all kids. It's completely not developmentally appropriate. And you know who knows this? People who teach kids for a living. People who have been teaching kids for a living for years. People who have gone to school to learn what is developmentally appropriate. And it seems that none of these programs that are being instituted include any people of those ranks. It's just ridiculous. It's just obscene. And it's just driven by literally billions of dollars of corporate money that want to impose their paradigm on schools. Sometimes because they have good intentions and they just think they know better than a teacher does. 
And other times, because there's a lot of people who, frankly, are enriching themselves through this. Pearson's not a non-profit. You do the math. And then fill in the bubble between the an- with the answers. You can have eight toys, put three away. How many are left for you to play? It's problems like this that you must survey. And solve using math each and every single day. Subtract a stack, put it back. That could help you prove it back. Think about digits, sitting still or if you fidget. When you shop at the mall and take a walk on a path. Can't help but yell, we're doing the For those of you that are new to this show, my whole angle is that I'm reading all the bills that passed the House of Representatives and letting you know what's in them. The bill we are going to discuss today is H.R. 5. This passed the House on July 19th and had to do with education. Now, one aspect of race to the top that would continue, that this bill would not dismantle, is a provision that lifts the caps on the number of charter schools that are allowed to exist. In fact, expanding charter schools is a clearly stated goal in H.R. 5. This is a quote. It is the purpose of this subpart to provide financial assistance for the planning, program design, and initial implementation of charter schools and expand the number of high-quality charter schools available to students across the nation, unquote. Now, charter schools are sort of public schools because they're funded by our taxpayer money. The difference is that they're exempt from a lot of education standards. Naomi Klein, the author of The Shock Doctor, and I've talked about her many times before, Describe them this way. Charter schools are, quote, publicly funded institutions run by private entities according to their own rules, unquote. Now, charter schools are allowed to create their own curriculums and are often not required to provide student services such as transportation and meals like the traditional public schools have to. Now, the funding for charter schools is determined state by state, but often the states fund charter schools by diverting money away from the traditional public school district where the new charter school is built. Now, charter schools are not allowed to charge tuition. They're not private schools. And they're not allowed to use the taxpayer money that they get to upgrade their facilities. But the thing about charter schools that makes them controversial, other than the fact that they are allowed to invent their own curriculums, is that unlike traditional public schools, there are avenues to make profits in the charter school system. Because charter schools, whether or not they're started by a nonprofit, a university, or the government itself, these charter schools can be managed by for-profit corporations. Now, for my own personal opinions on this, I'm kind of torn on charter schools because the public school system is very regulated and every school does kind of have to be the same. So in the public school system nationally, if art funding is cut across the board, then every school is not going to be able to teach as much art and every school won't be able to teach as much music. And there are definitely people in this world that are not meant for college, but are meant for things like art and music. And, you know, there might be a good case for allowing some wiggle room in curriculums because some of these charter schools are excellent. Some of them are not. And so when it comes to the quality of charter schools, the debate rages on. It's actually, there's no clear answer here, you know? When it comes to charter schools, 
this is a big gray area. Um, it's not like deep water drilling in the middle of the ocean for oil. That's pretty black and white, you know. I can tell you that this is a bad thing to do, and if you argue with me, then I'll eat you alive. But with charter schools, it's just not that clear. But the problems with charter schools, in my mind, based on, you know, my issues with the privatization of the government, is that these schools are funded with our taxpayer money, and some of that money gets diverted into the pockets of the people that are running these schools. I am also highly suspicious of the people that are promoting charter schools across this nation. If you go onto Alec's website, we've talked about Alec before. It's the American Legislative Exchange Council. And this is that group of corporations that sit down with state legislators and actually write the bills together. If you go to their website and you look at their model legislation, click on education and it's all about charter schools. So these creepy corporations are definitely the ones that are pushing this charter school program. And I just don't trust them. They've given me no reason to trust them. So that brings me back to HR5. Now Title 3 of HR5 was fascinating. The title of this section is Parental Engagement and Local Flexibility, but it's all about charter schools. Specifically, This title says that charter schools will get as much money as public schools. The states must pass a law giving charter schools money per student to be eligible for federal grants. And let's just take a second here and keep in mind that this entire bill wants to make sure that the federal government stays out of the state's business. Yet this part is telling the states that each state needs to pass a law giving charter schools money per student. So it's telling each state how they're going to fund these things. I find that crazy. The bill then says that there can be no limit on the number or percentage of schools in a district that are charter schools. It says, quote, that individuals directly involved in the operation of charter schools, unquote, need to be consulted by the state while the state is developing rules and regulations. Once again, the federal government here is telling the states how to do their business. Now, changing the typical structure of charter schools, this bill will also allow 15% of the funding to be used for charter school facilities. And that is kind of a scandal because because that's like a part of the definition of charter schools, that our taxpayer money doesn't go towards their buildings and their pools and their sports facilities or anything like that. This would change that. This bill also says that public money can be used to attract private money for facilities, for property and construction. And if you think about that, by allowing a charter school to invest and have a lot more money to put into their facilities, that's another way of trying to take students out of the traditional public school system because you'll have this public school that's now having money taken away from it. They're going to have to do a lot more with a lot less money. So that school's likely to be falling apart. And then right down the road is this brand new charter school whose teachers aren't in the public school union and has this beautiful facility and a brand new pool. And and if you were a student, which school would you want to go to? The regular public school that can't fix the lights? Or would you want to go to the brand new shiny school with the pool and the basketball court and all the fancy things? And when it comes to how our public money is used, the evaluations would be done on how the government distributes money to charter schools and not what the charter school does with our money. 
So clearly, a goal of this bill is to expand the charter school system. And another part of this bill makes that easier to overhaul entire education systems in districts, presumably so that they could become more charter school oriented. And it definitely aims to have this happen in richer neighborhoods. You see, right now, you can only overhaul your education system in a district that has over 40% of the students from low-income families. Why it's structured that way? I don't know, but that would open up this charter school thing to only low-income neighborhoods. Well, what this bill does is it takes away that requirement that most of the students be low-income and just allows this educational overhaul to happen anywhere for really any reason. And it also says that any new programs that are adopted in these education system overhauls can be done by private for-profit businesses. So, for instance, let's say let's say that a state wants to change their entire education system. Instead of having people in the state government actually oversee that process, they could contract it out, and some company could do that for a profit. It's like privatizing this the function of government itself. Now, when it comes to judging how these charter schools are doing. This bill would lower the accountability standards by changing how the schools are judged. See, the data used to evaluate schools would only have to be quote evidence based unquote instead of as it is now through quote scientifically based research unquote. So, in order to say that these charter schools are working, then you would just have to provide evidence that some students are learning. It doesn't have to be through a scientific study anymore that you get your data on which to judge the schools. Now, one of the things about this bill that really pissed off the Democrats and caused this bill to get not a single Democratic vote is the the lowering of accountability standards and qualification standards for teachers. Now they kind of pulled the same language thing with teachers, saying that the teachers need to be quote effective instead of quote highly qualified, as it is now in current law. And this happens over and over again throughout this bill. It also repeals any minimum qualifications that were set nationally for for teachers. The bill then gives public money for training for teachers themselves, which is a good thing, but it's the way that it does it. First of all, it gives up it gives public money, so our taxpayer money, to set up teacher evaluation systems and then further teacher education in states. Good thing, I'm down with that. But then that process, the process and the classes themselves can be privatized. So you take this pet taxpayer money and some of it goes into somebody's pockets. And then this is kind of stunning. These schools that would be training and teaching the teachers. Can't be required to have degree-holding faculty. They can't have any restrictions on their infrastructure spending, and they don't have to be accredited. That means that, and it's not just that they don't have to be. The government cannot require that they have accreditation. So here you have your teachers that are teaching your students going to a school that doesn't have a faculty with college degrees. That's going to be just fine. Now, the reason I think they would do this is it would open up the door for a lot of these for-profit schools that have popped up all over the country.、Um, a lot of them don't have accreditation, and this would allow them to stay in business if they're able to train teachers without actually having to pay faculty with degrees and go through the process of getting accredited as a real school. Now, this next thing I'm going to talk about is the part that. I don't really know if I understand what I was reading, just because what I saw is completely different from what people were saying on the floor of the house.、Uh, 
Um, see, this is the part of the bill that I actually thought was kind of good, because if you're going to have this charter school system, there are very real criticisms of it that, in my view, this bill seemed to take care of. For instance, I mentioned earlier in the show that charter schools generally don't have to provide transportation, so they don't have buses to bring the kids to school. And then for low-income students, a lot of times they don't have school lunch programs. And so this bill would provide public money for those charter schools to get those things. It would also provide public money for expanding charter school programs for kids with disabilities and provided public money for programs for kids who need to learn English, although the administration of that, of course, um, could be privatized. Now, when I looked at the debate, because the way I did this particular bill is I read the entire bill without even looking at any of the rhetoric, because I want, and I do that most of the time, I read the bill first and look at what they say about it later. And one of the things that the Democrats kept saying is that it it guts education for kids with disabilities and guts educations for kids that need to learn English. And I just, maybe I don't understand, actually, I know I don't understand what the current law is about those things. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, I don't really know. But there is money in here for those things. Um, so basically, I just have to conclude that I don't, really know what the situation is when it comes to charter schools and um, kids with disabilities and kids who need to learn English. I don't really know if this is better or worse. But what I do know about this bill is that it definitely gives the profiteers, the private businesses that exist to make money, a much bigger role in state education policy. So how did this bill do? Well, like I said before, this bill passed with only Republican votes. There wasn't a single Democratic vote. And one of the reasons that they said over and over again that they didn't vote for this is because it cuts funding for education by about a billion dollars. And I can't confirm if that's true or not because I don't know what the funding currently is. So I can't tell you whether or not that's true, but it was quoted quite a few times on the floor of the House, so we'll just go with it. But what I found really amazing is that all of this stuff that I've just spent the last half hour describing to you with the privatization of our public school system and with money going from the public school system into private schools and like all this stuff, it wasn't even mentioned on the floor as a factor in why Democrats weren't voting for this bill. Um, it actually has me pretty concerned, but not terribly surprised that the Democrats are okay with the privatization of our education system. Now, when it comes to essential government functions, I am not dead set that education is necessarily one of them. Um, but there were certain things in this bill that definitely had me concerned, especially as a taxpayer, because there were a lot of different avenues there for taxpayer money to go into private pockets and um, and not necessarily improve education. So I had concerns about this stuff, obviously, and um, and our representatives didn't, and I was genuinely surprised by that. I thought for sure that at least a couple people would get up there and be like, by the way, <laughs> you know, these charter schools are run for profit, and these tutoring things, they're all done for profit. I thought someone would mention that, and um, they didn't. And the reason that's significant is because just we just I, I just think that this is happening faster than the American people have been able to think about it and have a say in it, because these rules and regulations that we've put on our public school system, we've put there for a reason. So do we really want to have a parallel public school system that doesn't have to follow the rules, doesn't have unionized teachers, doesn't really have qualified teachers? They're now lowering the expectations of the teachers for our students. 
Do we really want to allow the management of our public school systems to be done for profit? So there's all these questions going on here, and it's being legislated, and it's being expanded, and I, for one, feel like I was never consulted. But I guess it doesn't much matter because this bill is doomed. It's not going to pass the Senate and President Obama will not sign it. It's just not going to happen. So this isn't one we have to worry about. But it is worth knowing that this is the goal of the people who are running the House of Representatives. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. historian of education, a professor at NYU. Her best-selling book is called The Death and Life of the Great American School System. Please welcome back to the program, Diane Ravitch. Thank you for joining us. Wonderful to be here. The Death and Life of the Great American School System, how testing and choice are undermining education. Now, you have to forgive me, but I believe if I'm correct, and I think I am, the conventional wisdom is testing and choice are saving the great American school system. So I, I, I think the premise of your book is probably wrong. I think you probably, you probably want to take all that back. You, 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 you go ahead. Well, let me ask your studio audience, how much do you like testing? Well, that's, that's half the argument right there. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the way it goes. So why is, in, in, in your mind, so the, this is, is no child left behind, race to the top. The, these are the things that are damaging our abilities uh, in schools. Is that? Yeah, I, I mean, basically what's happened since No Child Left Behind, which has now been around for almost 10 years, is that schools have been turned into testing factories, and there's less time for the arts. We have schools cutting the arts completely. Uh, less time for science, less time for history, for physical education, for civics. I mean, all the things that make school... F- Interesting and you fun. almost said fun. No, fun. <laughs> no, I stumbled on fun. It's true, but the you know kids have to have a reason to want to come to school. And no, I've never met any child who said I can't wait to get to school for test prep. But yet they would still have to to have it at some level. And and no child left behind certainly arose though out of a need to fix schools. It's not as though in the 90s schools were great. Uh, so what what would be the right? Fix, well, or is it just we, too complicated? We could, we could look, for instance, at Finland. Finland's the number one nation in the world on the international test. In Finland, they never give standardized tests at all. Uh, they focus on having really terrific teachers. They, mm-hmm. they prepare them well. They give them lots of support. Uh, and then the teachers make up the test, and they use the test to say which children need help. Even critics, uh, pe- people that, that you know, this uh, waiting for Superman, they 
they point to Finland as well. Everybody points to Finland. Mm -hmm. But Finland is not privatizing its school. Right. It's not opening charter very schools. Very strong teachers unions. Uh, very strong, 100% teachers unionized. Mm -hmm. uh, so Finland is an example of, here's a country that's been incredibly successful. The poverty rate there is less than 3% for children. In this country, it's 20% and growing. Well, that now, now, we're, now we're on to something. This is, you know, the educational system in the country is such a complex ecosystem. And it appears that the teachers, because they are the most visible and on the front lines, are the easiest target of the ire of those that would like to uh, express their frustration. And it's not to say that education in the country is, is in tough times. Why have the teachers, do you think, come under such fire? And how important are they with, within the, the scheme of it? Well, John, I've been traveling this past year since my book came out, and I've gone to about 80 or 90 different places all over the country. Uh, and the one thing I've learned is that teachers across America are demoralized. They're demoralized because we've had a public rhetoric for the last few years saying that if test scores are low, it's the teacher's fault. And that's ridiculous because in our low-poverty schools, our scores are beyond Finland's. Our low-poverty schools do incredibly well, and it's only where we have intense poverty and racial isolation in places like uh, Detroit, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore. And wherever you find poverty and racial isolation, you'll find low test scores because kids are hungry, they're homeless, uh, they're sick, not getting any medical care. Those things matter. And yet we have this corporate reform movement, uh, heavily funded, politically powerful, bipartisan support, mm -hmm. that says poverty doesn't matter. Well, if you're homeless and you're hungry, it does matter. Are they saying poverty doesn't matter or that... Because I think there's no denying that, that some of the parents and a lot of the parents and the children in those poverty-stricken areas and, and schools have a public school that feels out of control to them, and they want an, an avenue that they could go to. Is choice the problem either? It seems like charter schools aren't necessarily the, the problem. None of it deals with the larger issue, which is the environment around the school. Poverty is a problem. Kids can be poor and still do well in school, but people who teach in schools with a lot of low-performing kids are not necessarily bad teachers. Mm -hmm. And the whole public monologue for the last few years has been blame the teachers for everything. That is the thing that I think has been the most mind-blowing for me watching this debate and after sitting through the Wall Street debates and the, 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 the tax cut debates, to see people blaming the avarice of teachers or the idea that, hey, they only work nine months a year. Uh, God forbid you do the job of a teacher for a year. It will blow your mind at how hard... My mother was a teacher for years. She's worked in the educational field. She's still in the educational field. Uh, I couldn't be more uh, impressed by what she did and the work that she did in her life. Those people have no idea. Well, and yet, that's the conversation. Yeah, I have been in meetings with CEOs and governors, and they sit around saying, oh, teaching, it's an easy job, and they're overpaid, and their benefits are too much, and right. they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I've been in, in states, I was recently in Arizona, where the average teacher pay is somewhere under $40,000. Uh, I'd like to see a governor live on $40,000 But they get to also go to the dentist. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you didn't, you didn't mention that. That's true. What can be done, though? What, what reforms, so let's say there is, are there reforms on the teacher side that you think actually could be implemented that they could do that could also change the conversation? Well, it's, it's, it's certainly not, it's, it's going to take a cooperative effort. 
Well, let me just say that I think the things that are being done now by Secretary Duncan, by the Gates Foundation, by the Broad Foundation, by all of these very wealthy, powerful people mm -hmm. are taking us on the wrong track mm -hmm. because they're focused solely on how do we find and how do we find the bad teachers. I don't think America is overrun with bad teachers. I think America is overrun by too much poverty, too much poverty among children. And the, if we're going to talk about what works, we're not going to be talking about which teacher do you find and punish because their kids didn't get high scores. Right. We should be talking about how do we make sure that our children have adequate health care and that we have pre-K education, right. birth to five-year-old education, because there's a gap when kids start school. There's a gap at age three where poor kids begin and they're already behind Falling because behind. they don't have access to the health care and, and the vocabulary. The whole bad teacher's argument blows my mind, too. Like, have you been in the world? There's bad everything. You know what I mean? How many fast food restaurants did you go and you're like, what the hell's going on here? How many times, how many times have you been to the bank, to Wall Street, the thing? Like, there are crappy people working almost in every field. And yet somehow teachers don't have the luxury of having a couple of crappy ones. Sorry. Well, I was, I was with a, a principal the other day in, uh, in California. Mm -hmm. We were on a talk show in, in Los Angeles. And I said, how many teachers have you supervised? She said, and I've been a principal now for about 15 years. I've supervised 300 teachers. I said, how many of them would you say were bad teachers? She said, one. And I got rid of that one teacher. I cannot believe that that principal was allowed to kill a teacher just because they were bad. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I would certainly think the union would have to do something about that. <laughs> Because I had a great teacher. A great teacher is a work of art. A great teacher is key to success. A great teacher can change your life. A great teacher changed my life. Linda Bowie. Hunter Frost. Mr. Isaacson. Mr. Kahn. I learned that I didn't need to be like everybody else. I learned that everything is possible. I learned not to sweat the small stuff. I learned that you can approach knowledge with a sense of wonder and fun. I didn't learn how to speak Spanish, even though she was my Spanish teacher, but I did learn how to be myself. Mr. Isaacson, it's been a long time, but thank you. I'm Lee Darcy, Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hunter Frost. Mr. Glass, I thank you. Charlotte Pace, thank you. To each and every one of my teachers, thank you. Muchas gracias, Senora Flower. <laughs> Te amo.
research professor of education at NYU, also an author. Her latest book is called Reign of Error, the Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. Please welcome back to the program, Diane Ravitch. Great, thank you. Nice Wonderful. to see you again. Wonderful. Was laughing my head off at the earlier segment. We're really Loved it. quite amusing. We, are. <laughs> we, we work on that for at least an hour and a half a day. Uh, reign of error, the hoax of the privatization movement and the danger to America's public schools. Uh, uh, for me, the most surprising thing in the book is you spend a great deal of time. One of the assumptions that we make in this country is that the public education system is broken. Uh, you make the case here uh, that is not correct. Actually, no, it's not true at all. Uh, what I did was to look at all the data, and I found out that the test scores today are the highest they've ever been in history. Graduation rates are the highest they've ever been in history. Dropout rates, lowest they've ever been in history. And I came to the conclusion that kids today are, in fact, the smartest generation yet. It, 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 it's what, what, it, what it seems to speak to, though, is that uh, like wealth inequality, there is an education inequality. Because if that, that's an amortization, I would imagine. We have the highest test scores, we have the highest graduation rate, yet it's clear that there are certain areas oh, yeah. that oh, are really sure. struggling. There, I mean, the, the, the single biggest source of low academic achievement is poverty. And we have the highest rate of child poverty in the, amongst all the advanced nations of the world. Uh, there was a report that so came out. So we're number one. We are number one. We're number one in child poverty, and we now have Crazy. about half of our states where half the kids are living in poverty. This, for a rich country, this is ridiculous. And I think also people have uh, an impression that this is an inner city issue, and it is not. And there are a lot of areas, people would view it as, as middle class or blue collar in those areas, where the children are, they have food insecurity, they have uh, difficulties as well. This is a, it's a very widespread issue when it comes to education, yes? Well, it's actually focused on wherever there's poverty, there are low test scores, low academic performance, kids are sick, kids don't make, kids don't make it to school as often, their attention is distracted because of all the huge problems, emotional and social and economic, uh, of, of their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet these people who call themselves reformers say, don't pay attention to that. That's the elephant in the room. That's what we must pay attention to. I mean, if you really care about improving education in America, we would have smaller class sizes, particularly for kids who are poor. Right. We, we would make sure that every school in America had every day a nurse or health clinic that kids could go to when they were sick. We would make sure that every school had the arts, that every school had physical education, that children who, who go to... <laughs> but these, these areas now, so the, the families in these areas, because this gets into a, a, another issue that you bring up in the book. The families in this area uh, are rightly concerned, though, with the performance of some of the, the public schools in their areas. These schools can be... Uh, dilapidated, they can be poorly performing and these types of things. Uh, there is this movement, and it addresses this, the charter movement, that says, what's wrong with giving choice to those kids in those areas uh, because the schools around them are not serving their needs? What is wrong with that in your mind? Well, what's wrong with it is that there, it is part of, a, I believe, a purposeful effort to create a consumer mentality around education. Public education is a public responsibility. Whether you send your children to private school or to religious school or you homeschool them, that's your right. 
and if you have no children at all, you're still obligated to support public education. What they're trying to do is to say that public education is not public. It's a choice. It's a consumer choice. They're trying to destroy the sense of civic obligation. So the next time there's a bond... Turn it into a marketplace. Yeah, marketplace, exactly. So the next time a bond issue is up, you'll say, well, I don't have a child in school. I'm not going to vote for the bond issue. We're going to destroy public education that way. Do you think, you know, if, if you were to talk to most parents, they would say the biggest bane of their existence is this new, you know, core curriculum that is being tested. But they would also say tenure is also a problem. The teachers union is too rigid. Do you also uh, uh, admit that there can be reform in that area as well, that that, that can work together? Well, let me say that I'm probably the biggest critic of the status quo. I don't like the status quo. The status quo today is test, 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 pre-test, post-test, data. Uh, Kids are not looked at as individuals. They're looked at as data points. Mm -hmm. I think it's all wrong. Uh, I think that the idea of uh, you look on your school as you go shopping and you pick your school the way you pick your, uh, you know, your shoes or your automobile, that's wrong too. People should have a good neighborhood school in every neighborhood, right. one where they're very happy to send their kids because they know the teachers are terrific. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and activist director Katie Klebusik highlight individuals and organizations working to change the world. Today's campaign, Core Teachers, Not Core Curriculum. Undoubtedly, ground zero for education reform, a.k.a. corporatization and privatization, is Chicago. The entire nation watched as a unified and dynamic union bolstered by solidarity and organizational support from community groups, Occupy, and other local unions took to the streets in 2012 to scream that their unelected school board was about to further devastate the school's public school system. Since that time, schools have been closed and teachers have been laid off. From the outside, it would appear that Mayor Emanuel and the profit-driven school board have been largely successful. On the ground, however, the Chicago Teachers Union is pulling together its members, parents, and anyone interested in the education of our future citizenry. You need not have children of your own to be invested in the next generation's success, as we are all dependent on it. The CTU and its president, the CTU and its president, Karen Lewis, whose interview it the CTU and its president, Karen Lewis, whose interview with progressive radio host Matthew Filipovich is included in today's segment notes, have been outspoken about making their cause an inclusive one. With that in mind, the Caucus of Rank and File Educators, or CORE, is becoming an organizational hub with the primary goal of, quote, working to keep the rank and file of Chicago Teachers Union vital. CORE is empowering educators, parents, and community members in neighborhoods across the city through fairs, educational events, and demanding the media not ignore the rapid takeover of public education by an agenda-driven class of CEOs and their allies. CoreTeachers.org has links to their calendar, blogs by education experts like Diane Ravitch and Kenzo Shibata, 
and connections to other public education advocacy groups, a resource particularly helpful because of the issue-confusing language employed by the reform movement. It can be a challenge to discern who is funding what and which groups are actually working for students and teachers. Visit CORE's website to stay informed, donate, and volunteer. Education is under attack in virtually every corner of the U.S. In Indiana, Governor Mike Pence has created a bizarre situation with his attempt to circumvent the elected state superintendent by severing her power over the State Board of Education. Philadelphia has a state-run school reform commission, a Democratic gubernatorial candidate who's championing the sale of the district's art to bridge the funding gap, and a slate of schools on the chopping block. Detroit's bankruptcy makes the selling off of school buildings and property so unsurprising it has received essentially no coverage in the national media. Charter schools are being championed in these and other districts as public schools are sacrificed. If the third largest district in the country can beat back privatization, its efforts would be a template for other cities and the nation. Spread the word about core teachers, support their efforts, and as always, remember that getting involved locally with your teacher-sponsored community groups is one of the most effective ways to push for progressive policies. You should also check out the handbook due out later this year, Class Action by Micah Utrich, a progressive labor journalist whose work you've seen everywhere from the nation to in these times to the guardian links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places please visit the best of the left facebook page for updates on this and other activism opportunities you probably didn't fuck it up but they whoever they are they fucked it up now it's fucked up you help unfuck it up and then say are you really so fucking busy you can't take one fucking man to help unfuck it up because i'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up won't you join me Teachers have a very high turnover rate, and a former teacher by the name of Richard Ingersoll uh, wanted to do uh, a study, or a survey, I should say, to figure out all the different reasons why teachers decide that they want to quit their jobs. Now, he is now uh, a PhD in sociology, and he says that he loved teaching, but he just couldn't take it anymore. He says that it, there was a lack of respect that teachers uh, got, and he felt like he needed to do something that was more fulfilling, something where he had more control and more intellectual interest. Input, which is ironic because as a teacher you should have right. a great deal of intellectual input. But before we get to what his findings are, look at this number. It's kind of incredible. Anywhere between 40 and 50 percent of teachers will leave the classroom within their first five years. Turnover in teaching is about 4 percent higher than other professions. And by the way, um, a significant am uh, amount of teachers actually quit within the first year of their careers. So it kind of brings up this really big problem because our education system right now, as you guys know, is failing. And one thing that people constantly blame it for is the teachers. Mm -hmm. The teachers aren't doing enough. They need to work harder. It's because you know they're tenured. It's because they have the unions backing them up. They're just lazy. But when you really look into how little they make and how little respect they get, you kind of start to see that maybe the teachers are not the real problem behind our failing education system. There's no, I, I don't. I. I mean. Uh, I, I assume I'm speaking mostly to conservatives here. They're not. They never were. Exactly. That's not the issue. And I don't think even the, I don't think even the conservatives think that the teachers are. They think the teachers unions are. Right. So I don't think teachers it, union, which yeah. is made up of uh, teachers. Well, no, I know, but <laughs> yeah. but but it's not the. It's in other words, I don't think their issue is with the rank and file. It's how they're organized and the demands that they make, and 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 the fact that they don't. That there is not individual know, I, accountability for teachers because they're so protected by unions. Now, I, 
listen, I'm I'm with you, so I'm not. I'm just saying that I think they're they're. I think you're giving them too much credit. I think that they don't like them because they're organized, and because they're organized, they don't like them. They don't well, like anybody. Well, I think organized. that well, they don't like anybody. Yeah, but I think that it, especially with teachers. And, I, and listen, I think like so many unions, maybe some of the unions have gone too far, but they You've want to eradicate the, way, the unions. I've heard the way that the disparaging way, not just about the unions that they talk about public school teachers, and public education, well, public and, education. Yeah, and they're yeah, going to well, they want to privatize it. Right, I mean, they're going to hide behind the veil. I'm talking about the administrators and the teachers' unions. Yeah. And everything, but except the teachers are the main people you're talking about when you talk about uh, public education. But it's also, you know, the, the, this is a, a, a probably a well. I actually didn't read this article, but it's probably a well-written, mm -hmm. deep, thoughtful article. But it says, "Why do teachers quit?" You could answer it in a second. It's because they, their starting salaries are probably between thirty and forty thousand dollars a year, which yep. isn't even enough to live and pay back the student loans that they have for getting to become teachers in the first yep. place. So. Um, okay, so you brought up really great points, and you're right, you didn't have to read the article because that's exactly the situation. It turns out that, uh, and you guys probably already know this, the starting salary for a teacher in the U.S. is about $35,672. No, you said between 30 and 40 wasn't quite right. No, I yeah. was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, really between 35 and 36. Yeah, between 35 and 36. <laughs> um, and about 40% of teachers who pursue undergraduate degrees in teaching never even enter the classroom at all, and I think part of the reason for that is because you know the starting salary is a deterrent I mean you're taking out these loans to get the education and as you guys know at this point if you go to a prestigious university you could easily take out more than a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt and then what you're gonna go work for thirty five thousand dollars how are you gonna make enough money for to thirty five hundred years to pay yeah, back your it, loan it yeah. would be impossible to pay off that student loan debt um, but I think the lack of respect is what really gets under their skin because you know you have administrators which, by the way, a lot of teachers don't want to remain teachers. They want to work their way up to an administrator where there's a decent amount of money to make. Um, but uh, oftentimes, you know, they just don't even want to deal with it anymore. It's such a thankless job. Ben, did yeah, you Yeah, I in? just, you know, this one thing, he quotes a teacher here, this guy, Richard Ingersoll, who wrote the piece. We are held up to a really high standard for everything, this 26-year-old teacher at a public school in Kansas. It stems from the sense that teachers aren't real people, and the only thing that came close to making me stay was the kids. I think that goes to the sense that, again, they get blamed for everything, that they're, the, that they're on the front lines. Like, again, you know, you're not doing it yeah. when you're complaining about the teachers, you know. Uh, I imagine that eight, nobody gets into teaching for the money. They get into it. They, no one is like, holy shit, I trained to be a teacher and they only paid me $33,000 a year. I'm stunned. I thought I'd make a hundred. Right. You know, so you get into it because you want to teach, because you want to sort of share wisdom and mold right. young minds. But, but we've gotten to a point, as Anna just said, where, where student loan debt is so out of control um, that, you know, even at that point where, where people had traditionally said, I'm getting into this because I want to teach, and of course people will do that forever, it, it's, it's gotten even worse because of the money. Yeah, no, uh, there's no, look, there's no question. That, well, first of all, back when it wasn't totally because of the money, uh, when the, or it wasn't, you know, again, and I think it's in this article, women got into teaching because that's a job that women did yeah. before they got married. Like that's it was, what you did. Yeah. You did it temporarily, so that's why a lot of them left. And men did it until they became principals. Yep. Like they got into administration. So, and now that's changed a little bit. But we don't pay. We need to pay teachers a lot more money. Mm -hmm. um, but we're never going to do it. It kind of shows you what our priorities are too. I mean, you 
have, let's say, newscasters, right? You have newscasters that'll make hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars a year doing what they do. And yes, it's important to inform the public, but how did those newscasters get well, informed? Well, they usually themselves? work for big companies that have a lot of money. They're generating a lot of advertising revenue. Exactly. So it's a different model uh, than a school is, uh, which is publicly funded in most cases. And you know, it is. But uh, if you look at if you look at our federal government or the way we fund education, we fund education through property taxes, which is a terrible idea. Because mm -hmm. if you live in a poor area with lottery. low property value, then all of a sudden you're not going to have the same amount of money as you would if you were in Beverly Hills, for instance, for the schools in Beverly Hills, where the property values are much higher. You know, there needs to be more funding for education. On a federal level, I mean, we spend so much on defense. Why not take more of that money and funnel it into our education system? That way teachers can get paid more and there's more of an incentive to stay there um, and be enthusiastic about your job. It's one of the arguments for a lottery, too, is that mm -hmm. they do... they. Uh, give that money just uh, proportionally opposite. So the the the, mon the lottery money of a hundred dollars comes in, it goes to the to the uh, areas that need it most, and then you know in in uh, diminishing numbers goes to the other areas that are getting the most property tax but, money. You know, I mean, I, I you know I covered education for two years in Charleston every day, and are we going to hear the butter knife story again? Yeah, and the kids brought a butter knife to school and they expelled it. Um, and we just we got to make you know zero tolerance has got to go. Um, <laughs> You'd go to a school in uh, a nice part of town, same school district, nice part of town, and I just was always struck, and I've told the story before, but the, there was no lighting at the shitty schools. Like, the hallways were dark. Not pitch black, but I mean, depressing. Like, just not where you want to be, certainly not where you'd want your kid to be learning. And you'd think, how, how is this money getting spent? Can we just redo this so it's frickin' bright yeah. and has cute pictures on the wall so they feel happy to be in this place instead of like kind of prisony around some corners where you're like it's just a downer yep um and the schools would be four miles apart but one neighborhood would be lousy and you know and 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 mostly minority and the other place would be much nicer as an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. In the coming weeks, now that we're out of sort of the crisis mode with our uh, with the Republicans holding our, our government hostage, uh, we can move on to other topics, not the least of which is the ongoing assault on our schools by the corporate reform movement, which which shows itself in many different ways, and not the least of which is this high-stakes testing regime. We have spoken uh, many times of the implications of the high-stakes high testing. It is an all-out assault on 
allowing educators doing uh, what they know how to do best, which is to educate children. It is, um, and it's an all-out assault on our children in many respects. Not only does it pervert their education, because when you tie in the assessment of where students are in their learning, when you make that a, an absolute measure of the quality of teachers, and you encourage schools to become nothing more than little mills teaching to the test because it's the only way these schools can survive, it begins to impact the students in ways that I think people do not contemplate. There was a, uh, a post by Allie Gordon. I'm not sure what the... Um, what blog it came from. She was a, uh, a parent. She wrote a, a letter to the Board of Regents and her state representative in New York. I'm not going to read the entire letter, but I'll read uh, parts of it. She says how this uh, fight against high-stakes teaching became very personal. She writes, My 10-year-old daughter asked me what it would take for me to let her stay home from school forever. Isabella is very well-spoken, very bright. She describes herself as a feminist and loves to debate adults about the inequality of women's pay for equal work. She's committed to calling out bullies in school and helping those she sees that need a little boost. She can carry on conversations about interesting points and people in American history most kids have never heard of. However, Bella doesn't learn some things as quickly as other kids do. She struggles with reading at grade level, and has difficulty memorizing math facts. Math word problems are confusing for her and takes her longer than her peers. She has to work really hard to be successful academically, and she does work very hard. But tonight, Isabella decided that she has had enough. School is too hard now, she said. I'm too stupid to do this math. I can assure you we don't use the word stupid in our home to describe anything, especially not people. But in the one-hour conversation we had in which she was begging me to let her quit school, Isabella used that word stupid to describe how she felt about herself more than ten times. The mother writes, Because when a child is broken in spirit, when they have lost their self-worth and confidence, that damage is not erased easily. When children hate school to the point that they attempt to avo avoid it at all costs, there will be no desire to be college or career ready. Now, before you say, I, want, I just want my child to succeed no matter what, and it must be one of those everyone gets a trophy for participating parents, let me say this. I want my child to be challenged. I want them to have, work to be success, have to work to be successful. I want them to sweat it out occasionally and have to ask questions to clarify. I want their curiosity to lead them down paths I never imagined. But when they have no confidence, they will not try. They will not raise their hand to ask a question. They will fear homework, quizzes, and exams. And the voice they hear in their heads telling them they can't will create a self-fulfilling prophecy, so they won't succeed. If these insane policies pushing developmentally inappropriate curriculum on our children are allowed to stay in place, what will the future hold for those students who do not fit this one-size-fits-all approach? And she's talking here about the core curriculum 
the Common Core curriculum, which is in and of itself problematic because it's the Common Core curriculum. And it is forcing teachers to put, in, in many cases, I mean, we talked about the story last week about kindergartners being forced to take standardized tests when many of them don't even know the basic skills on how to use a pencil. And there are some kids, obviously, who are who have progressed further, and other kids who have not, and that's why you want a teacher in the room to determine what is appropriate for the class. But if they are forced to teach a one-size-fits-all test because they are getting pressure from their administrators, because their pr uh, administrators are getting pressure from their school boards, because this is the only way to keep schools open, this is what you get. You get many children left behind. What will happen when the precious data doesn't show the growth of these education reformers want to see because so many kids just give up? How many kids have to be hurt before we stop? How many kids have to use that word to describe themselves before we realize the damage that is being done? She continues writing, Tomorrow morning I will bring Isabella to school. I will tell her that I know this is hard, but she has to just try her best. I will tell her I know how smart she is, and so does her teachers. I will kiss her head, and I will whisper, I love you, with a smile. After she walks down the long school hallway, I will use every ounce of passion and, com uh, and compassion I have to call on my elected rep representatives to stop the abuse. I will contact every media outlet and offer my story, Isabella's story. I will call, write, tweet, and email the Board of Regents and the New York School Education uh, Commissioner, and I will request meetings with policymakers. I will rally friends and family to do the same. I cannot. No, I will not sit back and wait for someone else to get this done. No one has the right to implement policies that are downright abusives, no matter how lofty their goals. This is to say nothing of the rampant profiteering that is taking place in this school reform movement, nothing of its agenda to simply break the backs of teachers' unions. This gets down to just what is just horrible education policies that are being foisted upon children and teachers uh, to fit some type of political ideology that is born out of a corporate mentality that has no place getting between a teacher and their students. And, you know, this is, a, uh, this is an incredibly difficult fight because it's very hard to push back against an agenda that is at its very nature designed to succeed in the marketplace. When you're talking about the corporate reform movement, of schools, you are talking about it being staffed and funded by people whose primary um, professional life has been developing things to be sold on the side of a package or a billboard or in a 30-second ad. And they are attacking people whose entire professional training and motivation and experience 
is designed to be fundamentally far more nuanced and not to reach a mass group of people, but to, to, to function on a level of individual students. And so it becomes very hard for them to push back, frankly, because there is no one-size-fits-all answer for this. The only thing we know in terms of a glib response is that if you look at the median income of people living in a district, and not just the ones who are willing to go down and put their names in a lottery and be self-selected because they, they uh, have the opportunity or the will or they've been able to manage or they have enough breaks or they have enough family to take care of the kids so that they can get involved in their schools. If you look at the median income in any given school district, it is almost with virtual certainty that you can predict the quality of the school. That's the only thing that you can say that is in any way uh, glib or able to be digested in the small amount of time that people have to make this argument. And so uh, this is going to be, you know, this is an ongoing fight, and I, I don't know where it, uh, where it ends, frankly. Because as soon as you start to allow the profiteering that takes place in this... Um, corporate school reform movement then you know you just have that much more of of an incentive structure that makes it harder to stem this tide Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So uh, today, I, I don't have voicemails to play today. I'm in a little bit of a logistical nightmare, just personally, and so putting to the show together is a, a hassle. So I'm going to set voicemails aside for today and, and, and give you a little bit of a, a, a talk that has been going through my head for a couple, a couple days now. And, and it's, it stems from a, a voicemail that came into the show. Uh, Nathan, and I'll, I'll just sort of summarize. Nathan from Vancouver, uh, I think two episodes back, called in and he, he basically made the point that, you know, he, he doesn't want to be making his political decisions at the grocery store. You know, the whole shopping with your dollars idea, it doesn't work. You know, we collectively don't have enough money to, to have our, basically our purchasing decisions make a real big difference politically. Like we need to be active politically. We need to vote. We need to do all those things. That's where politics comes in. You know, forget about voting with your dollars, that sort of idea. And so uh, then one episode ago, Chris from Colorado Springs called in and responded saying, hey, you know, I, I think he's a little misguided on that. Like the whole point is to do it all. You know, you can vote with your dollars and go be politically active. And so, of course, I, you know, agreed with that in its entirety. And, you know, a, a thought crossed my mind that I'm going to get into uh, today that I just, I let slip. I, I you know, the, the thought came to mind. I thought I should say that. And then I didn't. And then uh, listener Laura, Laura wrote in, uh, sending me an email, and she had caught the exact same point. So, and said, hey, you know, this point got me, you know, Chris was making a good point. 
but this is what he missed. And, and she echoed my thoughts exactly. And so here it is. Everything is political. You, you cannot live a life in which you think that there are political decisions and non-political decisions. When you really come down to it, everything is political. So in Nathan's example, he wants to go to the store and not have his buying decisions at the store be political. But they are because what he buys has impacts on the rest of the world. And that's kind of the definition of politics. When, when taking actions or creating policies or anything like that has an effect, you know, that's, that's what personal politics are. And, you know, and so like in your personal life, you know, the idea of, you know, you can, you can buy wind power, for instance, you know, you have a home or apartment or whatever, you can pay a little bit of extra to have the energy that you use be to have that equivalent amount of energy generated by wind power. And so doing that, paying for, you know, that extra bit for wind power is considered a political act, you know, because as progressives who want to see, you know, more green energy come online, we want, you know, we're willing to pay a little bit extra. We pay the premium for the thing we believe in, whereas not paying the extra bit for wind power is not considered to be a political act, but it is. Not paying for wind power and deciding I'm satisfied with the status quo is implicitly supporting the status quo. And ask a conservative if supporting the status quo is a political act. Their whole <laughs> ideology is based on that. You know, sort of similarly, the idea of eating meat is the status quo. So becoming a vegetarian, as many people do for political, you know, overtly political reasons, that's considered a political act. You know, but eating meat isn't considered political. That's just the status quo. But again, it is political because you're deciding to buy into a system that come at it from whatever angle you want, uh, exacerbates climate change, uh, abuses animals, and so on. If you're supporting that system, you're supporting that system, and that's a political act. You know, and even more directly, voting. Voting is a political act, but so is not voting. If you have the ability to vote, if you are legally able to vote, then whether you vote or not, you have an impact on that election. By not voting, you are impacting that election, and by voting, you are impacting that election. Because, you know, if you, if you choose not to vote, there is a different number of votes that are being counted than if you did. And that is an inherent uh, impact on the outcome, you know, and then like just being politically active, you could say like, I'm going to go to a town hall meeting and I'm going to protest or I'm going to have my voice heard. And like, I'm, I'm taking a political stand. I'm making a political act by doing that, but not going to a town hall meeting does the same thing. It means that your voice was not heard. You, you know, you were not a person who was counted. The decision that was made was, you know, potentially, you know, slightly less in the favor that you would have advocated for had you been there, but you weren't there. So the, the decision was made differently because of your absence, making that a political act. So it's essentially every decision you make has consequences, uh, you know, of varying degrees, obviously. And thinking that that's not the case by pretending that you can sort of cordon off political decisions from regular decisions only means that what you think of as your non-political decisions will just be made less thoughtfully and will be more likely to be directly or indirectly in support of the status quo, which 
in many cases, is probably not the position you'd actually want to support if you put any thought into it. So no one expects you to be perfect and without a single instance of you know apparent hypocrisy. The point is to live in a way that best suits both your needs and your values as best as you possibly can. And that's what it means to live your life understanding that every decision you make is political and to just do the best you can to pretend anything else. It means that you're probably living less in line with your values than you think you are. Let me know your thoughts. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Go to that URL for details. It's an incredibly uh, simple and powerful way to support the show. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See you